0: Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 61st episode of the Truth Island podcast. Many of us rejoice that the days of trying to become a renaissance man or a person that can do just about anything are long gone. We no longer demand that to be considered an educated person, you must speak Latin, play a series of instruments, write sonnets in your free time, all while trying to solve your degree in physics. It's important that we as human beings recognize that each of us is truly different and that it makes sense for some of us to specialize in one thing, while someone else might need to specialize in something else. In fact, the world might never move forward if each of us tried to become a jack of all trades, but master of none. For example, would Einstein have ever gone on to invent relativity if he was trying to train for the Olympics? While a few of us can achieve a gold medal and a doctorate at the same time, it probably isn't the best idea for the vast majority of us to start wandering down one too many paths as we may end up getting nowhere. However, a new danger has emerged, one known as over-specialization. For example, someone who might fashion themselves a true history buff might become saddened that they will have to restrict their curiosity to the late middle ages for the next several years to satisfy their dissertation. It has become increasingly common in academia and perhaps in the workplace as well that one become highly proficient in performing just one task. The most notable example of this would be Henry Ford's assembly line model where a worker would be required to turn the same widget or screw repetitively for eight to 10 hours a day. The thought being that a person needed only to perform the same task over and over and over so that the entire building would work like clockwork. As most of the world leaves behind the industrial age, is it really right for us to demand that everyone limit the scope of their individual ability and interest all for the sake of efficiency? I am once again joined by Joe. Joe, how would you feel if every podcast we did moving forward has to be about the late middle ages are you are you feeling that my friend? Does that work for you?
1: No, not much. I mean <laughs> it wouldn't be very interesting for sure and I think that that's you know one of the areas that we ought to cover with this particular topic is that it's it's really not interesting to do the same thing over and over and over again but not only is it not interesting I do think that it's actually. Uh, detrimental to one's career and their personal progression, Mm. Um, especially when that becomes an obsolete skill. And I think that that's, in the world that we're living in, the knowledge-based economy, that is becoming something that uh, happens a little bit more quickly than it used to.
0: Yes. And I I think even with Henry Ford, you know, Henry Ford is celebrated as being this great pioneer of efficiency. And, and, And to all respect, he was. But at the same time, like if one of his workers got laid off, I wouldn't necessarily consider them like highly skilled because they kind of did the same thing every single day. And, and not only is it monotonous and tiresome, if that worker loses their job, well, what are they going to how are they going to solicit their skills? It's like, yeah, I'm the tire spinning guy. You know, like and I right. think that that when you make someone Overly specialized, you're kind of killing their skill set and killing the diversity of their skill set, which in the future is going to make them ever less marketable.
1: It also, they also have a very closed mind as well. They mm-hmm. stop thinking about problems as a whole in general. So yes. if you're only focused on the tires, you don't see yourself on how the whole automobile works and why things work, you know, how you can contribute in maybe a different way. And when you're unable to see that, then you become very close-minded. This tire becomes your universe. And I think that that's a challenge for how people, you know, not only when they lose their jobs, but how they live their everyday lives and interact with an everyday uh, life you know I, I just thinking about
0: this you know i'm now thinking of people that actually live in, in in the rust belt states and i can't imagine what's going through some guy's head who has you know wor- worked at like a ford motor plant for the past 20 or 30 years And maybe there were some that were lucky and they did that job for 30 years and then retired and they gave them like a golden watch or something. I don't know. But some of them were able to like kind of get through the system and get the pension and then be okay. But imagine what that does to a person's psyche that you've been doing the same thing for 25 years. You've lost your job. And just as you said, you thought of the whole world in terms of spinning that tire or doing that one function for the past 20 years. Like how, how can you even reprogram a human being after that? It's almost, it's almost like a a form of like, like neglect or or like a, a, a form of like mental imprisonment in a way.
1: It is. And it doesn't just imprison the individual. It imprisons if they have children because they start to think that this is a way of life. I go here, I'll work here. And this is all there is. And so what happens is it has a residual, like you may be fortunate enough where you had a 30 or 40 year career yeah. where no real innovation had taken place and that you got it, you know, you got your pension and got out and you're fine. However, if that's what your kids think that is going to happen, then there are expect- expectations of I'm going to have a 30 or 40 year career and it doesn't happen. That world it's kind of your world is completely upended from you and, yes. and, and and so it's like you start to think of the world as completely unfair and I and, and you know Peter Drucker actually I believe it was Peter Drucker the great uh you know management thinker was essentially saying that pretty sure he said the assembly line is one of the worst things that has ever happened to the American worker and I couldn't agree more and I hope I have it right by Drucker saying that, but I still feel the same way either, Mm -hmm. you know, despite, you know, whether it be Peter Drucker or not. Um, You know, I think it really does do a disservice to the idea of of the employee of how they begin to think about their job in general and the world in general.
0: Yes, yes. Now I'm gonna quote another economist uh, big m marx and again i'm not sure. the, i'm not necessarily the biggest fan of him but this is something he did get right and that is a lot of these industrial workplaces alienated the worker f- from from not only work but, but but from themselves there was like this alienation that people experienced when when you take a human being right and and in marx's time you had not only adults, but you had sometimes kids as, as young as eight or nine or 10 years old, and you're ripping them out of school. So you're liber- you're ripping them out of being able to read and write, and you're saying, hey, kid, your job is going to be pressing buttons on this machine for the next 10, 12, 13, 14 hours, and that's all you'll ever do. I mean, th- this, is a, this is kind of a, a form of abuse in, in a way, because Yes, you're increasing efficiency. Yes, you're producing more widgets. Uh, you know, you're, you're you're reaching higher levels of quota because of this efficiency, but you're really depriving somebody of, of the grander things of what life consists of, and you're really denying them the way to view problems and see, you know, the greater universe, so to speak, of, of what they could achieve and what other problems and what other tasks they could be doing with themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, and sometimes with the idea, even coming back to the idea of Karl Marx is that we tend to just punish people for whatever they've gotten wrong and don't necessarily look at what they had gotten right. And this idea of pushing a button, let's, you know, think exploit, you know, that, you know, you're looking at people as a means to an end Mm. in that system. And he was, he was right about that. You know, the, the idea that we're exploiting an individual you know, and not thinking about them in the long term is problematic and them not being able to think about themselves because the system is dictating exactly what they do. Right. Uh, So I I, I think that that part of it, you know, having a critical approach to the idea that we're looking at people as a means to an end is ultimately problematic.
0: You know, yes, I I, I think it is. And, I I think that there, you know, there are some people in this world that they're going to be completely content, you know, doing the same thing over and over, less anxiety, or they, you know, work does not really define them, right? So maybe they have other diverse interests outside of the workplace. But the thing is, is that you're kind of killing them off from a survival standpoint, because you're basically treating that person as if they're sustenance, and their entire li- their entire livelihood is based on this model and based on this factory. Whereas when that factory closes down, the people on the lower end who are doing the monotonous tasks, they're going to be left with nothing at all. Whereas the people who have, you know, a more deeper understanding of the world or, or a higher degree of education, they're going to have, they're going to be versatile to be like, ah, my management skills and my problem solving skills that worked in the tire factory work just as well in the um, computer chip factory. You know, so like that, that's kind of, one of the things that we do to people is when we force them to engage in monotony and not enhance their skill set we're, we're really killing their chance for survival.
1: Absolutely. I mean, because they're unable to see the connections of the bigger picture. Yes. And I, and, and, and that basically we're dictating what they can think at a certain point in time. And I, you know, this has a way of manifesting itself in other parts of society. Like, so we start to think about even when we're, we're, we're looking at even engineering. You know, mm. we we tend to look at that as something that you always have a job, and you this is this is a great profession. But I've had friends where their family looks at that as you have to be an engineer now. You have to be an engineer because you're managing your managing yourself towards a job and a profession and something very specific, as opposed to managing yourself towards learning how all these, how the whole system works together and taking up engineering within that uh, bigger picture, you know, type of our more holistic way of looking at the world. People that are computer engineers are an example. They're almost, while it's a very unique skill set, and it's still in high demand, computer programs change. So that these ideas that these things are gonna stay the same and your ability to adapt is the most important thing. You know, people used to, you know, code and COBOL. So if you went to school for COBOL, you're not going to learn and stay and doing COBOL for 40 years. It's just (laughs) not going to, it's not going to happen. I mean, and if you have that expectation, you'll be, you'll be very upset about the outcome. Mm. Um, So I I think that this idea of specialization, you know, that it's always going to be there is the bigger issue that we're kind of feeling or dealing with.
0: And I'm really glad that you brought um, engineering into the picture because a lot of people, when they think of you know um, automation or over-specialization, they think of some guy in the Rust Belt who just lost his job and now he's addicted to opioids and all these other problems. But what they fail to realize, especially maybe some of these like smug, you know, cosmopolitan city folk, right? Who have like the fancy engineering degrees is they think, <laughs> never going to happen to me, you know, like I, I have such a refined and specialized set of skills that the the, the tide's never going to get up, right? Imagine, imagine your city's being flooded and you're like, well, I live on the 10th floor. It's never coming up here. The tide's never, the the tide's going to wipe away every, the basement level folk, but not me. But what they don't realize is that one, things change, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that science or, or technology is replacing you, but it will change. And that that might just make your particular specialization obsolete, right? I think there was even Mm -hmm. this thing called, uh, back when I was younger, there was something called Macromedia Flash. Do you remember that, Joe? Uh, I don't. I don't. Actually. Flash. was So there used to be websites. Oh, I do actually. Forgive yeah. me. I do. Yeah. I there do. used to be these websites that use something called Flash and you could have little videos. Yes. Then I think eventually HTML, I, I don't know anything from my coding friends are laughing at me right now, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they're, 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 they're like, Aaron, just stop. But I'm like, yeah, exactly. I, I think eventually HTML or other, other things kind of replaced Flash and you don't see Flash. On phones as much anymore, because it was it used a lot of data. It used a lot of um, of the phone's resources. So I think Apple, Apple said, we're not enabling flash because it kills our battery or something like that. And then lo and behold, oh, Apple doesn't allow Flash anymore. All of these uh, right. developers stopped using Flash on their websites uh, so that they, their websites would be compatible with Apple and so forth. And this is an example, like if you had just known Flash, if you had just, that, that's the equivalent. Like knowing how to program Flash is the same thing as the widget guy in Henry Ford's assembly line. You're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. You're not seeing the larger picture of, of web development.
1: Absolutely. And it's when you have these very unique, specific skills, if you're doing the same thing over and over, that means it can most likely be automated, Mm, right? Because you really have a defined set of requirements and this is what you do. And that's what specialization actually, unfortunately for some people, uh, it limits them into thinking only within that even if you're doing something that's a very difficult task. And we've spoken before offline about how the legal profession is being automated. You know, yeah. this is a profession that requires a high uh, level of learning and it's very difficult, very expensive. And yet these jobs are being automated because they're so specific that they're found in, in one company with the idea that they were able to automate most of their legal counsel because many of the questions that they were receiving, there was a certain pattern to them. And so that they were able to, you know, basically use a bot to replace these, these attorneys. Sure. And that that was a lot of work, you know, Mm -hmm. but think about all this, the money that they spent in the interim and all the time that they've invested in the interim and that is being automated. So, you know, the idea that you're, if you walk away with thinking I have a law degree and I'm done, you're sadly mistaken. (laughs) And I I mean, it's just, you know, and that that that's a that's a very high level profession. That's I have actually, no you know, law degree, and I say I'm done. that's <laughs> yeah, right. right that, 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 that's right. That's right. But um, then you're actually that makes you ahead of the lawyers. <laughs> right, right.
0: So long, suckers. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. Glad you paid for that 150k for that education.
0: Oh yeah. my god. I hope. I hope. I hope if I ever need a lawyer, they don't hear this. Episode. Yeah, exactly, They're, they're yeah, gonna want to. You might wanna wanna that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And and you know what, the funny thing is, is that sad thing is, is that it's also happening in, 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 in accounting as well. You have these, uh, these websites like TurboTax and so forth. And yeah, you still need some high-end accountants for like, you know, nuances in corporate finance law or something like that. But the average Joe, like if you, if you, you know, pretty much know what you owe, you could probably do your own taxes using TurboTax or one of these like assisted software programs. And that's, that's taking a bite out of like H&R Block and all of these other companies. And so again, the, and I, and here's the thing, here's the thing about accounting from what I hear is that there are two, there are different layers to accounting. So there sure. are, there is an accountant that just does the same 1099 W2 forms for people over and over and over again. They can do it really quickly. Then they got, they got the calculator on their desk. They're like, boom, 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 boom. You know, done, done, done. Like they've, they, they, they have those forms completely memorized and they can just do it in five seconds. However, they're the ones that are the most susceptible to automation, whereas the guy who knows like the theory of accounting or the theory of, of money-saving whatever. That's the guy who actually is really needed because they're not doing something that's monotonous. They're being kind of dragged into corporations and f- solving wicked complex problems and, 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 and asking deep questions. So they're almost, they're philosopher-like accountants that go into these companies and say, where is most of your revenue coming from? Are you are you have you ever thought about generating money from that? You know, like they're asking they're actually going in there and asking questions and actually figuring out where the money's coming from and how the money may potentially come from different places and what things are draining money unnecessarily. and that requires a much higher and less uh, like a skill set that can't be easily replaced.
1: Absolutely. And I think that anything, You know, it's interesting, anything that's rules-based, where you're doing X, Y, and Z, and you have a number of scenarios is subject to automation today. Mm. So you really have to be able to do this analogical thinking, like where you can draw analogies and see how tax fits into, you know, um, the greater corporate structure or how tax fits within the system itself. And this comes into the idea where, you know, I just had come out of conversation about systems thinking, you know, you really need to start to think about how this particular uh, action fits within the greater whole. Right, right. right. And, And that's a really important point is it's, you know, anything that's rules based is subject to automation today. So the yes. only people that are going to survive long term, and a lot of people uh, you know, think about this even in public policy terms, it's why people are talking about the idea of a universal basic income and some of these other types of solutions, is that not only will those jobs be automated, but people are going to be forced to reinvent themselves five, six times in a career. Now, we just talked about it earlier where you could have a 40-year career and not mm. reinvent yourself. Sure. Well, now, you know, you'll have to reinvent yourself every five or six years. And the speed of that innovation will, you know, you know, will dictate your ability to earn. And this is where people are concerned about, you know, individuals ability to keep up with that. But if you think the idea of specialization, if you even take that that approach, there's a high risk associated with it where that was a very there, there that you know past 40 50 years maybe 60 70 at this point that wasn't the way that people thought about it you know people thought about it specialize get a job and they've shown that the way income is earned specialists do start out making more uh and but they plateau yes yeah. and they end up actually you know people that have more generalized skill sets then surpass those of their peers that have decided to specialize.
0: You know, I think a perfect example is the job of anesthesiologist, and from the, from what I heard, they're very highly paid in the medical field, highly highly sought after, highly paid. But there is, I I don't know where exactly, but I I did hear that they're starting to develop a machine that can actually apply just the right amount of, of um, to, enough to put you out, basically. And it's like the anesthesiologist has to be thinking to his, you know, to himself or herself, uh-oh, when that machine comes out, you know, there'll be laws and rules, our union will fight it and this and that, but it's still there. You know what I mean? Right, and, like right. and And here's, here's the thing, Joe. In New York City we had, you know, so many yellow cab drivers, so many of them. And right. um, to, to drive a yellow cab, what did you need? You needed something called a medallion when, you know, which is a fancy certificate from the city that says you can drive a limousine or taxi, right? Right. And Uber came out and they, you know, the, the ones that were, were were smart and really on top of it were like, yeah, I got to sell my medallion and get out of this. As soon, as soon as that app came out, you have to be aware. And this is, it's not necessarily just being the most motivated person in the room. It's really your survival at this point. You're, you have to really be, and, and this is the same thing. Uh, if we think about our early nomadic hunting civilizations, it's like if if you hear some rustling in the bushes, but you don't see the tiger, right? You right. hear like, oh, 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 oh I, I, I heard some noise in in, in, in the bushes over there. You don't just say that's probably nothing. That's probably no tiger. It's probably a bunny. rat. No, you pretend as if that's a tiger in the bushes. And that's how that's how you, you should reframe your mind.
1: That, that's right. And, 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 it, and it's this constant reframing. Yes. That you have to get used to doing. And when you're a specialized, you don't necessarily think that, you know, you're right. not you're not even willing to reframe. Yes. And so that this this it, it comes with it is a mentality that this will always be there. And this is my the way the world is. And that's a very closed minded way of approaching life in general. But it also you have an inability to see the bigger picture and see connections. And that's another area is that how do you even necessarily. OK. Uber just came out. What are you going to do? You know, if you have only if you have this closed mindset where this is the world's going to be, you, you don't jump out of the you, you don't react. You don't yeah. even know how to react. You actually act probably irrationally at a certain point. And so I, I think that that leads us to the idea of how, you know, how do you start to get to the where you start to see connections? Yeah, you know.
0: Now, there's also like like I, I want to also think about what maybe the employer or the government's role is in all this as well. Cause I do I, I do think they have a, a social responsibility here. Because imagine for a second you have a cab driver that sees the Uber app come out in 2010 or whatever, right? And let's say they are smart enough to realize that, oh, 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 this is the beginning of the end wait a minute, what the heck else am I going to do with myself, right? And I I think that to develop more skills or a different skill set, it really requires time, right? It requires time. And what that means is that you need to kind of cease doing what you're currently doing and maybe live off some tuna fish and some canned soup but you know, not everyone has that that kind of financial safety net to just be like, I'm taking a year sabbatical to learn a new coding language or whatever. You know, like I, I think that 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 um, does require a lot of discipline, and there are some. Ultra-disciplined members of our society who will work their nine-to-five job realize it's total nonsense, and then come home and then immediately start learning new skills. But that's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult to work 45 hours or 50 hours in a week. Say no to your wife. Say no to your kids. And be like, guys, guys, I'm going to be automated soon. I, I I just worked this 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 long shift, but I I gotta you know sit here and learn my Python or something. So I'm wondering what 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 onus does do employers have to kind of make sure that no one's engaged in too much monotony and that they are growing? And what role does the government have in all this?
1: You know, it's a, that 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 is a fantastic question because I think it's Toyota is one of the companies that where their you know employees would work on the assembly line, but they would also have during downtimes they would learn other jobs within the company. So I think that there is a role for these companies. And they realized by training their employees and teaching them at different, in different parts of the industry that both they and the employees were benefiting. So the company actually has a role, I think, in, in taking care of and I, And I find that every employer, in my personal opinion, this is my personal opinion, this is not necessarily the reality, but my personal opinion is that employers have to have a role in ensuring their, their employees are, you know, remaining somewhat employable. Mm. And you know that it's, it's a relationship that ultimately benefits both the employer and the employee. So I think that that this is, you know, you're creating an environment of learning that is really important that's idealistic too uh,
0: yeah and, and uh, you're going to you know you are going to come across some employers not my problem not my right, problem like right. there is going to be and they they're, they're going to just be like well that's nice and all but i i need i, I need my i have invest you know i have investors i have uh, you know, a loan out for this business. I have, um, you know, my this is a publicly traded company, and so forth. There's a board of directors. You know, like they're going to come up with a thousand and one excuses about why they just it's not fiscally safe to do that or whatever. But I think if if there was more studies and more research done about how training versatile workers actually increases productivity, then at least they could have something to go to their board board of directors and be like, hey guys, I'm not crazy. Here's the research that shows that this is actually a smart move to play.
1: Absolutely. And it's like kind of long-term thinking is what it really is. You know, what you're talking about is that, and and I do think that there are companies that think long-term. They don't necessarily train their employees to be to To be generalists, which you know that that that's a big ask, but I do think that you know it, it is a problem of scale as well. Yeah, you know, at what point is it? Do you need a division of labor within your company because your your company is so big? I mean, you know that it, it, there are these questions that we have to answer. Um, I coming back to the, your previous question is I do think that the government has a role here. Yeah, uh, very actually, important. one one thing sure. before
0: we go into the government thing, I'm, I'm sure. just thinking in my head, I'm thinking it's funny that we mentioned uh, the late Middle Ages in my intro, because one of the things that the Middle Ages gave us was crop rotation right? Uh, you know, and the three field system. So I'm thinking in my head, why, like, at the very least, you should be rotating your employees around the circle and have them pick up different hats. And it could be like a yearly or, or quarterly rotation of like okay you did this for six months but now we're gonna have you do this other thing and, and I think that that's that's a compromise because you can't just walk into work and be like oh, I have no idea what I'm doing today and everything is just a random surprise and and you you have you know like you're learning everything for the first time every single day you're right Th- that is completely dysfunctional that is absolutely right. dysfunctional for workers to come in and and probably stressful I would be if sure. I was a worker as much as I hate monotony, I think it would be highly stressful to go into work every day and be like, here we go again. I have no idea what they're going to want me to do today. But I think there needs to be a, like a crop rotation of workers where workers are spending six months doing something. And then when that kind of gets old and stale, they're being rotated somewhere else.
1: Yeah. And some in some ways I look at that as a, you know, that's the role of leadership is the idea that you're more invested in your employee's future than they are in theirs. I mean, yes. that's almost in a way that how you have to approach it, and so how you how you get the most out of employees and inspire them to learn at a higher level. I think that that's the role of management. I think that's the only role of management because the employees will take care of the company in that case. You know, so I do think that there's there's that 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 you're right. You don't want to go to one end of the spectrum where you're figuring out what you're doing today. And that's complete that's complete chaos. You're you going to be a
0: chef uh, today, Joe. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, I hope you don't plan on eating. Like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, or,
1: or you're, you're going to grow with me in this job. Right. You know, it's like, so. Um, but no, there this, you know, but at the same time, you know, and, and this, these, even within an organization, these are complex, Yeah. you know, problems in the sense even if you're rotating people if they know they're there for a short period of time you know they may do something that is not necessarily in the long-term interests hmm. of, of of that position or that company but that's yeah. where but that, it will give you a holistic way of looking at the problem but
0: this sm- now the, okay and, and again i think employer-employee relations are 50-50, right? Like, like that. So I think that the employer does the right thing by giving their employees the opportunity to w- sit in many seats, wear different hats, and learn as much as they can, really pad that resume up, really pad that skill set up. But- that only works if the employee says, I'm gonna take each of these opportunities really, really seriously. I may not like working in all these various departments, but for whatever, for the five month or six month rotation that I'm here, I know that my survival is dependent upon me being able to put this proficiency on my resume. So in case this shop you know, uh, closes and burns down to the ground, I'll be able to take myself somewhere else. So again, the employer's responsibility provide the opportunity employee's responsibility take the take it seriously
1: yeah and they actually and i also look at the employer being responsible for providing them with a context as to why this is so critically important that they do this kind of rotation and that they not specialize yes it, that it's that it's important to both parties and that's the most you know it's 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 the idea where if you're working at a a car company, you know, in the assembly line is that in coming back to that example, that, you know, you got to convince people to understand why they need to know the whole entire car and how it works. Yes. You know, because this tire will not be here forever. You know, that this, so you're going to have to know how all these other things work. And that's why I'm doing this. So once they have that context, they're motivated and I think that and again, as you'd mentioned, the employer needs to provide them with that 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 opportunity. But I think if they understand why it's important and that their survival is based on that, then they're going to take a vested interest when they do you know they start to learn a little bit more outside of their narrow way of of working.
0: The other, the other thing is, is in most workplaces, they have something called departments, like you're in this department and so forth. Right. And what ends up happening is you work with the same people over and over and over again. And, and let's be honest, it's just, it gets stale and it gets a little bit boring. But from, an, from, from a business perspective, though, it's not really breeding innovation. Because once you have yeah. like 10 conversations with the same guy over and over, it's like, okay, um, well, what else? You know, there's nothing else to talk about. And there's no innovation being built. Whereas now you constantly are throwing new bodies with each other every six months. So now, and and, and maybe some of those relationships will be disastrous where it's like, yeah, I'm glad that six months is over. I never have to see so-and-so's face again. But on the other hand, you might be in a situation where it's like, whoa, I, I, I learned so much from that guy and he learned so much from me. And now we have a totally better way of doing this all together that we can take to upper management. So that's like innovation is created by mixing diverse people together, just mixing people. And when I say diverse, I mean, just diverse skill sets kind of coming together. And the only way that you can do that is by having some type of rotation system.
1: Well and and I think ultimately this is the way organizations need to be structured. That's that's you know, needs to be more of a level organization overall. Yeah. You know, where where people start to not see it as a hierarchy within each department, but they start to see the organization as a whole. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think if you look at the most innovative organizations that they actually tend to make sure that you're able to have multiple opportunities to learn about the business that you're actually in and and i think that that's something where and it also that there, there's an element of scale within this that that has a lot to do with the ability to be able to see the whole yeah but i i but it but i do think that the more siloed and you know the, the when we're talking about specialization you're talking about silos yes right yeah. whether it be information silos whether it be um, action, you know, where you're actually working in physical silos and how these what you're talking about is breaking these silos down.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, is there anything that prevents an employee from going to the second to fifth floor and talking with some somebody else or or, or learning something else? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean I would they're probably like who the hell are you? Oh you're that right, guy from the right. second floor. And yeah. it just what what happens is that when you're forced to work with different people, it just naturally invites conversation. Whereas you could work at the same company with somebody, but if you don't directly work with them you don't really have that impetus to start a conversation with them or get to know them or get to know what they do, you know? And and if you try, I've actually tried to do this. Um I, I did work in uh with my one year working at a law department, I did do that and they're like, Who the hell is this annoying guy? Like, get the hell right. over, get you know, like who let this right. mosquito right, in here, right. you know? Like so I <laughs> that's awesome. I, I I just I just got bored at one point. So yeah, like, I can imagine, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I go up to people, I'll be like, oh, that's an, that's an interesting uh, bumper sticker you have on your cubicle. Whatever. Yeah, I, I, yeah, tried. Yeah. I tried my best and, and it, like it, it backfired. But had I been introduced mm-hmm. in the right context, if we had actually been introduced or signed a project to work together, then who knows what kind of innovation, who knows what kind of magic or chemistry uh, could have come from that.
1: Yeah. And I, I think you're really hitting on something very important here. And then I was actually thinking about in the idea of, you know, this new normal, even with the coronavirus, mm. where people are working at home all the time, they're more likely to become much more specialized. Yeah. You yeah. know, and because you're almost in a silo, right? Yes. Somebody's making these decisions that you're going to do X. And you're not necessarily going to take the elevator to the third or fourth floor and learn what other people are doing. And this is going to be one of the great casualties I predict of the coronavirus is that people are going to say initially that their costs are going to go down because they they look at it as, hey, look, everybody can work remotely. We're going to save money on travel. We're going to save money on all these areas. But what you're going to see is people become more specialized in that process Mm -hmm. because they're going to be waiting for direction. They're not going to be interacting with in casual conversation or learning about other, you know, positions unless the company has a way of rotating those individuals. And I I see people becoming more specialized in remote telework. And and that could be problematic, I think, for the organization as well as, as the individuals that work within that organization. Absolutely. absolutely.
0: Yeah. So thinking now, uh, let's, let's go back to the government role. We, we did discuss UBI. Is there anything else, any kind of like royal kick in the behind <laughs> that the government can give us to, to, to start thinking in this way and, and the resources to do
1: so? You know, that's, it's a great question because I don't think it's been really thought out fully. I mean, I, there are people that, have, that are on the cutting edge of this is obviously like somebody like Andrew Yang. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, he's really thought about, you know, even ways of people profiting off of how their information is used. Uh, you know, he's, have, he, he's really thought about this problem. The one thing I don't necessarily, I still haven't seen where I'm buying into the UBI fully yet is the idea of inflation and you know within that within that framework i I still think that that could be problematic however i the government's role in this process is going to have to be really well thought out And, and the reason why is because it can go bad either way right i mean if you make a bad decision with something say with you try an initiative like a UBI and people then arbitrarily say, well, it didn't work. It caused inflation. And these are all the issues with it. Well, yeah, but, you know, it was part of an experiment and maybe you adjust within that experiment. I'm personally haven't really thought about it enough. Yeah. say what I think what policies I've thought about it to some degree, but not to say emphatically what policies the government ought to be implementing in order to ensure that people are able to reinvent themselves from being specialists to another profession not even generalists i'm not going to go so far yeah, to yeah, say general yeah. but you know you hear about these ideas of oh we'll start a retraining program and you know that's almost i i've seen you know a lot of studies where they say that the reality of the retraining program really doesn't match what people need or you know don't it doesn't meet what people need in order to become truly retrained and that's one of the arguments for UBI is that not everybody's going to be able to be retrained you know that you know if you've done something for 20 20 years and that's what you're good at maybe you worked really hard to get good at that,
0: that
1: particular profession and so reinventing yourself may not be the option
0: Right, right. right. And
1: so those are the individuals that you really do need to be concerned with.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, these are very complicated, you know, issues. And and like, I agree with you that if we do fund UBI, we can't just print money to do it. It probably does have to come from our, you know, we have to cut something else and then use our existing resources to do it. So we don't have that massive uh, inflationary thing. I'm wondering also, Andrew Yang in his policy with UBI says, okay, I'm going to give you guys a thousand dollars a month, which we we know is nothing, especially in New York, where, where right. that's that's toilet paper money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, 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 literally. It, yeah. You know, it's it's really nothing, right? And he said, "Well, you get your UBI, and then you work some uh, part-time job or whatever at Home Depot or something I'm like. That's not really retraining people. That that no. you're giving them a thousand bucks, and then they're working some kind of freelance 20 dollar you know some some kind of um like part-time job and I'm like okay your life is considerably better and that's freaking awesome but the retraining element is not really in the equation and i I, I agree with you for our, our rust belt folk who are in their you know later 50s 60s or 70s that's that's gonna be immensely difficult I, and I don't right. I, I cannot answer that question right now on this program um you know, hopefully the heavens do send someone who can. But I, I think I do think of it as what we could be doing for our younger our, our younger workers, whether they're high school or college educated, is they they could definitely benefit from a year kind of turnaround program that teaches them like, okay, this sector is in decline right now. However, this sector over here is on the rise, and. I think you can get the fundamentals of something within a year. You know, I'm not saying you're going to take some dude and be like, all right, man, you're going from driving trucks to performing heart surgery. Like we're not, you know, we're not going to have these like year long turnaround programs. But I think for certain things, like depending on your skill set, like we could probably take um, certain mathematicians and train them in to, to do physics or, you know, there is, there is like some cross compatibility between different fields. Like we we could probably train um, some social workers to do psychology work or psychology workers to do social work. I think like certain fields have enough mobility that a year of training might be enough to do the patch. And then there also has to be some allowance of the employers as well. Like, okay, we have the year of training to fill in the gap and we are also going to have our own onboarding and our own six week training program to also make sure that they're fully integrated within our systems as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think you hit the nail on the head with distinguishing the people that are now in the workforce and have been in the workforce for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Right. And individuals that are now in school, because I think that that's where we have to look is we have to look at our educational system and determine what are we actually preparing people to do yes and then what is the value of that going forward you know because ultimately we need to be training people on how to learn and i think that school does that to some degree but not in the right now we're we're valuing people that what they specialize, you know, they specialize in engineering. They specialize, I mean, they become, uh, or, you know, they specialize in, um, even accounting, you know, the, the, these very, very narrow areas where we actually need to be starting to focus on more of and I said, more of a liberal arts education. Yes. We need to be giving people tools for the ability to reinvent themselves and and that's thinking you know and how do we get people to start to really comprehend at a higher level yes and the the specialist format or you know that that we use now doesn't work
0: it's funny, you know, it's really funny you mentioned that. And I think it was Elon Musk who said this, but I might be getting that wrong. You know, like having a STEM degree today is freaking awesome, but in 20 and 30 years from now, it's going to be the philosophy degree that rules above all else because it's this idea that you're you're being trained to to see big solve big picture problems. Now, here's 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 the reality of this though is how many people can be trained to be very broad philosophers and and be able to like think constantly in a big picture way and i i'm scratching my chin like is that something that's even possible because i I, i'm I'm actually thinking about this i'm actually thinking about the end road of this of like how how are we how are we going to teach people to be naturally curious about things, and naturally inquisitive, and naturally, you know, and this is something that, that I, I, I I, don't really have an answer to, because I think that over specialty, you know, I think there's employers like people to specialize, and there is a lot of employees, and I, I, ha- I, I have to, I get bored very quickly, and I think what makes someone a philosopher is that how bored do you get like, do you get bored really quickly? So if you get bored really quickly and you are you get curious about other things, then you kind of have like a philosophical mind. But there's a lot of people who like to just do the same thing all, all the time. They like to be an expert in their one little tiny niche. And that makes right. them feel good. And I'm wondering if all of these people can be trained to be philosophers or to be these very versatile creatures that, that look at the world in a very, very broad and, and very like wide lens. I, I don't know if it's even possible.
1: No, I, I don't think you can train someone, but yeah. what you have to do is somehow incentivize it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that can, because ultimately, what do you need to be a generalist? That's the uh, opposite of a specialist. And one of those things that you need is you need to be curious.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so
1: the idea of curiosity is something that you don't necessarily teach, but you can incentivize it. And I think that that's where we have to start looking at incentive structures within S- schools and, and 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 therefore afterwards.
0: Oh, wait, no, see, we're getting really, really, really deep here because I would almost argue that if you have true curiosity, you don't need an incentive. Now, <laughs> but, but, but maybe, 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 maybe I'm wrong. You're
1: absolutely right. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. But but this is coming back to the question of we can't teach people to be curious, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we can't teach this. So what else can you do? Right. So yeah. you have to have the certain proper. You have to have an, an incentive structure where people start to say, "Okay, it's in my best interest to be curious." And how that framework would look, I'm not sure. Yeah. But the, the the distinction being is that you want to get as many people to be open and generalist as you possibly can. And the only way you can do that, I, I've, you know, in my my limited knowledge is through incentives and and, and you know, and I, I, I think that there's the naturally curious individuals that are always going to be naturally curious. And they're always going to be, you know, seeking for for knowledge and and ways of uh, of making a living, or, or contributing to society. But it's it's the questions of then there's the third group, you know, who can do that and who right, can't. Right. And so we have to figure out within that that construct, how do we take care of everyone within that you know that that framework.
0: I mean, I get it gets into some murky waters because. Then we're kind of having fear-based and carrot-based curiosity. So it's like, I'm not naturally curious about things, but uh, I, I see if I if I learn this thing or I become curious about this thing, then I can earn more money and so forth. And maybe you know what, Joe? Maybe that artificial curiosity is the only it's the only solution that we have right now. And as you know, I had this conversation. Uh, with my friend Kenny about like artificial feelings and real feelings and so forth. And maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe just, you know, being like, Hey, be curious because here's, here's the carrot, you know, at the end of the day, if you get curious about this set of skills, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like we're taking kids to museums and showing them like you you ever been to like uh, uh, an astrolab or, or or like um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, Planetarium. Yeah, sure. You know, and it's just like this idea, like the, the underlying, like the reason that I think part of the reason I think that planetariums exist is to be like, look at the universe, look at this, and here's a career that you can do based on that. Like like this curiosity is basically being used as a means of like, where do you see yourself earning a living through this curiosity? It's not necessarily curiosity for the sake of, but it's just, it's just basically creating this curiosity so people will, will, will gravitate towards their self-preservation and their identity.
1: You know, and I think that this comes back to an earlier conversation that we had about the idea of valuing questions, right? Yeah, so that yeah. you start to see the universe, then you start to ask the question, how do you fit in it? And I, and I think that, but once you have an idea of what the universe is, you're already thinking more along the lines of, a generalist, because you start to see your role, and you'll see if your role is going to change. Right, right. And your abilities to change within that. You know, this is all idealistic, but I do think that these are real issues that we need to start thinking about. Because I, I, I see this as uh, employment becoming a real problem for you know a lot of people in the next ten years. I'm not even saying this is that far off. We're not talking about. Yeah, you we're know, not you know it, it, you start looking at the the cost of you know doing business and certain manual labor that's involved you're going to automate it at a certain point and it's not necessarily going to be insul- you're not going to be insulated if you're even in the medical profession certain to certain degrees maybe in diagnostic but but not necessarily in the surgical realm you know there there are machines that do better yes than than humans so
0: maybe look, this is maybe one practical step we can all take. And this is something I've done in every single job that I had, even in teaching. I think everybody right now who's listening needs to stop what they're doing for just a second and just say, why am I doing this? And, and what I mean by that question very specifically is why is what I am doing important? who is looking at what I'm doing? How is it serving a greater good? How is it contributing to a larger whatever? And maybe you don't have that answer right now. Start looking it up. Start doing some research and figuring out how your little cog in the machine is actually making that machine run and if that, mach- if that machine should even be running in the first place. And I think that if we all kind of did that, and and this goes from your mechanic all the way up to your college professor who's studying like just the late middle ages right now, is if everybody does that, they they, they may find some dark truth and be like, holy crap, what I'm studying is not all that important and there's not many practical applications or the application that once existed is no longer the case. And, and we can at least become. We can start developing self-awareness of our own over-specialization and our need to break from it.
1: Yeah, I think having a warning system of specialization. You know, yes, if yes. you're planning to only do this, that there's a risk mm. associated with it. It's almost like you, you know, like going to school would almost be like having a pack of cigarettes labeled by this labeled by this surgeon, <laughs> surgeon in general saying. <laughs> If you specialize in one thing, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Like you know, <laughs> that's that essentially is part of the enrollment. So you can go in there and smoke all you want, but there's going to be problems with this. So I, I you know, I, I think that there it's going to be self awareness, but there's also just a, an awareness to understanding the context of what the risks are of being a specialist. And I think that that's something that we can even look at where. Uh, you're talking about that, even speaking about people that are very specific in academia. Yeah, right. right. You know, that, that, that you know, there's a risk here. And, you know, that if you're overly specialized, that you may have a problem with employment down the line. And I think that if people get the message, you know, then maybe there's, that's where you kind of have an incentive structure in addition to that, where people, you know, learn, more of a variety of skill sets then at least that's at least giving people a chance to understand they're not blindsided when something goes wrong that's yeah. the key that's what you really want to prevent you don't want the guy who's putting a tire on the car to be blindsided
0: yes yes that's and
1: that's the most important part.
0: and i think you're really onto something here joe i'm not the biggest fan of like fear-based systems but but yes i think from a very practical standpoint risk analysis for what you're doing is really important. You know, if you're, if someone's tricking you into learning something very niche, you really have to be like, well, let's say the research goes in this other direction, you know, like, like, and you have to really think, you have to really think deeply, like in 10 years from now is Uber going to overtake my taxi. And, you know, if you're, if you're studying a specific space, if you're studying a very specific branch of science, you you need to be curious about other branches of science because you never know when your branch of science may go de- defunct because we, we do have defunct, you know, I, I think I spoke to you offline about cran- cranology or, or studying right, like right, the, right. the skull or something like that. And it's like these people, you know, got doctorates and dedicated their lives to cranology or, or you know and all of these other kind of debunked pseudosciences right now and if they had just had the curiosity to be like hey what's that guy doing uh with a microscope right now oh we oh, studying cell you know like if they had just been a little curious outside of what specifically they were studying then they could have reinvented themselves and they could have been on the winning ticket and I I think I think, yeah, you know, it sucks that we have to appeal to fear right now, but you're right, Joe, I think that's the only way moving forward right now.
1: I think, you know, but it's it's appealing. I don't want to necessarily say fear, but also reality. Yeah, Yeah. But I think there's another aspect of this that's really important that you just kind of alluded to is this idea that we don't focus necessarily on monetary value either. You know, because I think when people start to say this is the industry or even this skill set tends to give you this type of reward, it becomes a closed system of thinking, right? Yes. You're only managing yourself towards this one in particular value, which is actually, you know, not necessarily real. And, and part of that is you may not, we're not that good at predicting. You know, so that it's not a question of, of, uh, you know, it, I think it's more of a question of trying to create a certain degree of awareness that, that people then can try start to understand the importance of lateral thinking.
0: Yes. Not yes.
1: necessarily, not necessarily looking at it from uh, the value of just let me take as many classes as I can, because then I'll get a certain reward out of this.
0: Yes, I I think that's a you know, I I think you've taken something negative and made it positive. And I, I think I think the big takeaway out of this is follow what your mind is telling you and not what the money is telling you. I think that's the biggest thing that we can take away here because the money might tell you, specialize in this, specialize in this, specialize in this. But listen to your mind, your mind is, you know, or we could say heart, but heart and mind, listen to what your heart and mind is telling you is important and what's universal and what you should be studying. And if you follow that, I think that's going to re- lead you to much greener pastures than, than just following like, oh, well, this is a high paying job and so forth. Um, Joe, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Oh, this is awesome. Thanks, Aaron.
0: This concludes the 61st episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.